My name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Today we have a special guest um, who's part of a story that I covered a couple of weeks ago. Um, and that is David Whitney. He is a pastor in the Evangelical Free Church in America. And he's come under fire in that denomination. We covered this at the time, but now he's come to not only tell his story in person, but also to give an update on the story and what happened on his trip to Minneapolis, um, which you guys get to see first uh, as courtesy. So anyway, um, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Ray. Thank you for having me on the show. Awesome. So Evangelical Dark Web is a Christian news gathering and commentary ministry. You can support us over at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. That's our Patreon-like system. But the least you can do is like this video, subscribe to the podcast, to the channel, if you are new. So, uh, David, I, I just kind of wanted to open up and kind of get to know you a little bit more. Um, uh, how long have you been a pastor? It's been 42 years. Uh, I've pastored churches in uh, New Jersey originally, then Colorado, Florida, and been here in Maryland. And the church uh, we planted 30 years ago is the current church I'm pastoring, Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church. And we're in the Bowie area, which is, uh, if you look at Washington, D.C., and you travel directly east of Washington, outside the Beltway, is, is where Bowie is. Well, yeah, it's funny how people in Maryland, you know, will explain their geography more. And then people <laughs> in California just expect that, you know, you know, Riverside, San Bernardino and all these other places. But yeah, that's good. Good description of where Bowie is. Um, I'm north of D.C., uh, two counties or so north. Um, so you've been pastoring that. Have you always been evangelical free or? I've been involved with the evangelical free church for those 42 years, not continuously. Uh, the first church that I helped plant that uh, was in New Jersey, then it crossed the river into Pennsylvania, Yardley, Pennsylvania, where it currently exists. It began as Bible Fellowship Evangelical Free Church. It became an evangelical free church due to my encouragement and in, uh, uh, influence with the group of people founding that church. And uh, then I traveled from there and I, I went to seminary in Denver. Uh, so I was just with that group for maybe the first nine months of their, their life as a, as a church. But it went on to today to be called Riverstone. Uh, and then in, in Denver, while I was in seminary, I was working part time with a Baptist church. Uh, uh, it was a conservative Baptist church. I think it still is, but that was at Bear Valley. And then from there, I was hired as I graduated from seminary, hired by an evangelical free church in Eustis, Florida, about uh, 45 minutes north of Orlando, that, that kind of area of Florida. So I was there for a number of years and then was hired later by a uh, non-denominational church here in Maryland. And then from that, we planted Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church uh, 30 years ago. So the there's three churches, two of which I planted, and it was my encouragement and, and influence that uh, led them to become Evangelical Free Churches, and then another church that I pastored in Florida. So uh, most of my ministry years for the 42 years have been uh, in the Evangelical Free Church. It sounds like you really believe in this denomination. Uh, can you characterize why? I mean, my understanding of evangelical free churches, it's derived from Swedish immigrants and they're mm -hmm. the conservative version of the evangelical covenant church, mm -hmm. which has embraced all sorts of liberalism right. on the issues of critical race theory. They adopted that, I believe, in 2009. 
Uh, they're also pretty liberal on homosexuality, specifically with regards to concupiscence. And they've long had women pastors, which is, a, I believe, a more direct distinction between the two denominations, but both mm. derive from Swedish immigrants. Is that your background or is there something else that led you to this denomination? It's not my background specifically. My background was being raised in a conservative Baptist church and then later in a non-denominational church in my teenage years. But uh, I was familiar with the local evangelical free church where I grew up in, in New Jersey, saw them doing great ministry. And looking at, uh, there's, there's a danger in a non-denominational church that it might be kind of insular on its own and, and may wander away from uh, the true standard of the faith from orthodoxy because there's no one holding them accountable. Uh, and so that's why I thought it's best to be involved with a denomination. I felt that uh, although I was raised as conservative Baptist, I thought that the evangelical free were a little broader uh, in terms of reaching more evangelicals and that they didn't require believers baptism, but infant baptism would be acceptable in, in some churches. In my, my particular church, we don't do that. Uh, but uh, we know that other evangelical free churches do because they're persuaded of that. So there was some broadening from what would have been the typical conservative Baptist um, perspective that I thought was valuable. So I admired this church, even though I'd never uh, been part of an evangelical free church. So when I worked with the group that was planting the church there in New Jersey that ultimately moved to Pennsylvania, that, that group uh, also had the same background in, in conservative Baptist movement and was open to saying, we need to be a little broader, and yet we need to be committed to the essentials. And one of those, the very first essential is the inerrancy and absolute authority of the Word of God, that it is without error in everything it says about every matter it speaks to, and it is the final authority. So regard women pastors, very clear. You can't read First Timothy chapter 2, and come away with saying, oh yeah, women pastors were acceptable in the New Testament church. It's very clear. Paul says, don't let a woman teach or usurp authority over a man. Um, I don't see how groups like the Covenant Group can uh, dismiss that scripture and somehow say, well, you know, that's a cultural thing. No, the, the Word of God is very clear on that, as well as other, other issues. So I like the, and still do like the Evangelical Free Church's commitment to biblical inerrancy and that the Word of God is the absolute authority on the essentials. And the distinction with the free church would be that there's a core group of essentials that are in the doctrinal statement, but outside of that group of essentials, Christians may differ on non-essential issues um, and, and differ strongly, but still love one another, work together. And uh, so that kind of charity on the non-essentials, but unity on the essentials was and has been traditionally a, a great emphasis in the evangelical free church. All right. That, that, that's a pretty interesting answer that you were seeking sort of, uh, you know, nowadays they call it like a reformed evangelical Catholicity. Mm -hmm. I think it's a term that's thrown around. I don't know if you're reformed or not, mm -hmm. but you're looking for some sort of evangelical Catholicity. Um, Correct. And, so it, it's interesting that you choose that over, say, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is also very big tent. But, you know, their distinctive is being credo Baptist and mm -hmm. immersion. Um, you know, th those are their distinctives. So with that said, um, you're not a native Marylander, right? That's correct. I grew up in New yeah, Jersey. Mm -hmm. You come to care and know more about the Maryland Constitution than 
you know, pretty much any other Marylander except maybe, you know, Michael Perotka and <laughs> the other people at the institution on the Constitution. Or, that, yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And that's an interesting story how I got involved with that as a pastor for most of the years, maybe maybe not the first two or three years, but most of my years as a pastor, I've been an activist pastor. That is, the issues that are taking place in the culture, I see the Word of God speaks to those issues and that we as Christians ought to be doing something about those issues. We ought to be uh, publicly proclaiming the Word of God and the truth of God in the public square. So I was involved in protesting the murder of babies in the womb. Uh, while I was in Colorado, and uh, I remember in, in Florida, the few years we were there protesting also in front of the abortuaries where they murder babies. And there was a, a town that I lived in, a small town, Mount Dora, that um, was having this great excitement because there was this film coming into town that was going to use the, the stage of the streets of, of Mount Dora. But the problem is the, the, the film was very Satanist, and the film was emphasizing things that were clearly against God's word and God's law. And there was a group of Christians who were opposed to this. It's like, wait a minute, taxpayers' money is being used to support this film. So we shouldn't allow that. We should tell the city council, no, we don't want that. Our taxpayer dollars going to support this anti-Christian type of, of movie. And uh, there was a protest plan that somehow I never got the word that it was canceled. <laughs> so my wife and I showed up. They're the only, we wound up being the only protesters that were on the front page of the newspaper and all that. But I've always been an activist pastor because I believe the Word of God speaks to the issues of the day. And Christians ought to be actively involved in speaking to the issues of the day in the public square, not hiding behind the four walls of their church and not having any public presence. So the result of that is that when I moved to Maryland, I became active politically. I've testified just before uh, at various committees in the House and the Senate uh, for 15, well, more than 15 years now, probably close to 20 years I've been testifying on various issues. And uh, one issue in particular that my friends and I were op opposing, and actually this is now uh, 23 years ago, was the first pro-sodomite legislation ever considered in the state of Maryland. And the governor at that time, Glenn Denning, was able to break enough kneecaps, twist enough arms, and knock enough heads around that he finally got his wish that this pro-sodomite legislation went forward. It was passed in both houses and came to his desk and he signed it into law. Now in Maryland, we discovered as we studied the Constitution that there was an option we as the citizens have to take such a law to referendum and therefore it doesn't become law until the people vote on it in, in the election in November. And it was a very high standard. For 15 years, nobody had achieved the standard of actually uh, conducting a successful referendum we had no money and uh, no organization, but we said, we've got to fight this. And this was uh, 2000, 2001. And so we did. And we were able to do what most people thought was impossible because it hadn't been done in 15 years. 60,000 valid registered voters signatures in 60 days. Actually, we had 75,000 and submitted in time the time that was required. Uh, and it was, you know, approved by uh, attorney general and so forth. This was going to go on the ballot. But the sodomites pulled out their trump card, a judge who made his own determination uh, that was not law. He, he was basically, basically making law from the bench to throw out uh, about uh, two, well, maybe maybe a third to half of our uh, the signatures. And this was infuriating. This was, <laughs> we had done all this work. And uh, that was the day I actually met Michael Peruca in the courtroom. He was homeschooling. He brought his kids into court to give them a little illustration of what court's like. And it's like, whoa. I met him and, and he said, David, 
I'd like to invite you to take the course we're, we're conducting on the Constitution. That's where I began to recognize the reason why we as Christians are losing the battle again and again and again and again. We haven't properly learned what the law says and how to use the law. And uh, that's when I began my work with Institute on Constitution 23 years ago, teaching the U.S. Constitution, developing the only course on the Maryland Constitution, a course on the jury. So a whole bunch of things to train and equip Christians to take place their places in the civil body politic according to the biblical standard of law and government, which is what we teach everything in light of uh, at Institute on the Constitution. Yeah, and I, you know, you brought up Michael Peruca uh, just to give some clarification or some extra context to the audience. Uh, when I launched my campaign, I did run for county commissioner uh, where I live. Michael Peruca was the keynote for my kickoff, um, and I was active on his campaign for attorney general in 2022. And he, you know, he's been featured. It's fun see, seeing him featured on like you know NBC scare panels or whatever. Like they do these scare segments or whatever, fear-mongering segments on Christianity and politics and the Christian nationalism, all that. And it's like, they're like, I know that guy. <laughs> so it's pretty fun. Um, uh, and then I, de I definitely got, you know, you know, a lot out of the, you keynoted a, another event that I presided over. I wasn't really the organiz organiz organizer of that event, uh, the Constitution Day celebration that we did uh, mm -hmm. where I live. And you you explained, you know, some quotes out of the Maryland Constitution that directly point to, you know, just how, you know, it's a duty to worship God. As, you know, it's in the Maryland Constitution. I, I think you said it was Article 34? 30, 36. Article 36, 36 in the Declar Declaration of Rights. <clears throat> so, you know, which is, which was written in what year? Well, 1776 is what that language, we've had four constitutions, but that 1776 language has still been preserved. Okay. Although this past year and the previous year, they've been attempting to strip every reference to God out of the constitution. So far, they haven't succeeded, but uh, yeah. yeah. One of the things I appreciate about Maryland is I think Maryland uh, of the 13 colonies probably got religious liberty the best, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, freedom of the Christian religion, you know, basically I'm like, you know, they probably got it the best. Uh, you know, they didn't, I don't think they had an established church, you know, even though it was like the Catholic colony, they didn't make that an established religion. Uh, not that it's inherently wrong for an establishment of religion. Like I can see, you know, certain areas where that would work for the population, but, you know, broadly for the nation, you know, the constitution got that right to say that, to not impose that on the, you know, 13 colonies and broader because there's already different uh, religious groups. But I thought Maryland got it really the best. You're right. Um, In fact, the language of our First Amendment comes from Maryland's Act of Toleration of 1649. It was far ahead of, most people think of Rhode Island as the place where religious tolerance was uh, practiced, but Maryland was where it was practiced first because uh, the Baron Baltimore, of course, was a Catholic and he wanted this to be a place where Catholics could uh, coexist with Protestants. So his, his, even though he was a Catholic, he did not want a, a purely Catholic colony. He wanted Catholics and Protestants to coexist. So people ought to take a look at that, that, that think that uh, somehow religious toleration uh, was, was something later. No, 1649, very early in the history of Maryland. And the so Article 36 uses language out of the 1649 uh, Act of Tolerance. And that, those, uh, that Article 36 existed before our U.S. Bill of Rights, before the First Amendment. 
So the First Amendment drew thoughts, ideas, and actual phrases out of the Maryland State Constitution of 1776. So moving forward to kind of get into the whole, you know, 2020 happens, you, you know, you, I guess you haven't been a troublemaker in the EFCA no. up all, all this time. You've <laughs> kind of been an ardent supporter, in fact, you know, you yes. planted two churches for them. So 2020 happens. Larry Hogan issues his lockdown on March 15th or 16th, 2020. It was a Wednesday, I believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, churches everywhere, you know, send out their emails that they're shutting down. Uh, you don't, obviously. That's correct. So what do you do? You know, well, we, we had a long-term rental relationship, 25 years renting from a Seventh-day Adventist church up in Pasadena. And they uh, sent me a voicemail message that Friday night saying you're not going to be able to use the facility this sunday and i was shocked it's like <laughs> i thought we had a working relationship uh this is amazing to me and uh, so began to make phone calls around our congregation and uh, a, a fellow in our church who has a farm said well why don't we meet at the farm so temporarily we began meeting at the farm in a, in a garage actually <laughs> and uh, that uh, turned into a couple of months because what well, you know it was what 15 days the lesson the curve or whatever nah, that was all a big lie we know it was a lie from the beginning but uh, uh as the the scandemic which is what i call it because it was really based on all sorts of lies as that progressed we as a congregation made a decision even when the seventh day adventists reopened their facility we're not going back there we wouldn't go back there because we know that the next time and we expect there will be a next time there's a lockdown that they'll do the exact same thing. And we don't want to be in that situation. We want to be able to obey what the word of God says in Hebrews 10, 24 and five, forsake not the assembling of yourselves. That's not Zoom, the assembling of yourselves physically present together. And so we continue, we didn't miss one Sunday, although I got sick one Sunday wasn't, or, you know, there was, there was times I wasn't able to be there, but our whole congregation continued to meet uh, without missing missing one Sunday. So we praise God for the ability to do that. So was there unity among the elders and the leaders of your church or, on this? Or was mostly. there any sort of... Mostly. There was, there was one family that uh, was not, when we took the vote, voted against that. But the rest of the church were, and this family actually, when the lockdown began, they stopped attending as uh, they believe that the lockdown was correct. And so we had a, a essential disagreement on that point, but we love them and uh, still have a friendship with them. So it's not as if there's a hard feelings because of that decision, but they felt, uh, and uh, this, this happens, I think, with uh, folks who are um, employed uh, by the civil government. They often will take the side of the civil government when questions come that, you know, people might have differing opinions well their opinion probably most often will tend to side with uh, uh, the one who pays their paycheck yeah it's definitely a you know contributing factor to you know why maryland's a heavy blue state and why virginia has gone blue recently um, because of the government paychecks and the industry and the economy of government uh, now, now it's interesting they even put that to a congregational vote, you know, you hear and the fact that, the, you know, even still one one family of dissenters is. That's pretty small compared to a lot mm -hmm. of the heated struggles that you hear about, you, you know, you got Grace Community Church saying that they had 40 elders all on board with lockdowns, mm -hmm. not even one dissenting voice. And then you hear of other stories. I think uh, Joel Webb and I don't know if you know who that is. Yes, I know um, Joel, who Joel so is. Yeah. 
he oh, okay uh so he you know had split his church split over this issue and he mm-hmm. just graciously decided that you know he was gonna plant his roots in texas you know not seeing a future to raise your family in california so a lot of churches had you know disagreements over this uh i definitely have moved churches in large part because of this issue because i thought that gathering was essential and i didn't I, I kind of thought you were being a state church if you're gonna, you know, lock down and take the state money, and I, I had major issues with that. And you know, it's the churches are leaving these people and basically saying they're not essential. So you say that you know church is essential, and how how does the EFCA catch wind of this? Well, our our denomination is divided up in 10 dr- districts. The district I'm in called the EFCA East is Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, you know, Virginia. Anyway, we have cluster groups of pastors that are pastors that live in a region that get together on a regular basis, three or four or five times a year, that sort of thing. Well, of course, during COVID, they wouldn't meet in person. So on a Zoom call uh, in November 2020, they were asking around the circle, um, you know, what, how's your church doing? You know, how, how's it handling all this and, and so on and so forth. And my response, and I was the only pastor that responded, we have not closed our doors. And we did, and I just said, we did not do so for two reasons. First, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, we believe says that we are to assemble in person. And secondly, that the governor of Maryland has no authority to shut the doors of any church. In fact, he is in violation of his oath of office Article 36, as well as a number of others, but he's in violation of his oath of office in doing so in shutting down the churches in Maryland. And I you know, didn't add anything to that, but that really upset a number of pastors, at least three pastors that I know, because they later uh, held a meeting with me to um, uh, basically grill me on not just that issue, uh, but the whole list of other issues that they sat down. I guess they had extra time because of COVID. You know, they didn't have as busy a schedule. They weren't so they visiting had... elders in the ho- they, or they weren't visiting the elderly and no. reading last rites or visiting nothing the like and all that. that other stuff. No. So they had all this extra time on their hands. So they spent some of that extra time reviewing my sermons, which I'm amazed. I mean, another pastor would sit down and li- listen to any of my sermons. Kind of surprising to me, but anyway, they were horrified, and they they used that word. One pastor. Bill Kynes of, uh, well, he's retired now, but he was of, of uh, Cornerstone, same name as ours, Cornerstone of uh, uh, Annandale, Virginia. But uh, he was, he said he'd be horrified if anyone in his congregation ever listened to any one of my sermons. I was like, well, thank you so much for the compliment. <laughs> I wasn't preaching to your congregation, Bill. So obviously what I'm preaching, I am aware of what my congregation's questions are, things that are troubling them and things that they're uncertain about. And I try to start where they are uh, with each sermon, questions that may exist in their mind as I, I know them, and then try to relate that to what the Word of God has to say. You know, does the Word of God have to say anything about a gene editing software that would change your genetic code? And I believe the Word of God does. Psalm 136, verse 16 talks about uh, all my members, that is, my members as a human being, were written in your book. That is God's book. Hmm, that's kind of curious. All my members were written. Whoa, that sounds exactly like DNA. My uh, eye color and my height and all the different, you know, physical characters, they were written in a book by God, and God has a copy of that book, 
And ah, yeah, he's placed a, a copy, an exact duplicate of that book in every cell of my body, the trillions of cells. Fascinating. Oh, so if I go about seeking by some scientific you know, method to go in and change that book that God has written, which is exactly what those shots were, were designed to do, as uh, Moderna chief uh, um, science engineer said, we're hacking the software of life. That is, we're changing human DNA. We're creating a hybrid human that's somewhat human and somewhat whatever we're creating. And um, so I preach that kind of thing to my folks that I believe it, it would be wrong for a Christian to take this shot because this shot is designed to alter your DNA, to alter that book that God has written. And hmm, we have another word at the very end of the Bible, you know, Revelation 22, that talks about if anybody adds to or subtracts from this book, uh, that reference to God's word, the Bible, you know, the curses of this book are going to come upon him. So wouldn't then God be just as wrathful towards those who would purposely go about changing the human genetic code? And I believe he would be, and he is. Now, people might differ with me on that, but uh, I preached issues like that. You know, talked about the uh, reality that the, the face diaper, and it is a diaper because it does the same thing diapers do. It, it catches what the, the creator has designed for our body to expel, you know, and it traps it right in front of your face. And we know there's been 45 studies now that prove that they do nothing. They do not help your health whatsoever. They're just a, a you know a, a useless thing, but they do indicate one thing: that you are in submission, submission to these uh, author so-called authorities that are commanding you to do these things. So, you know, talking about those sort of things, they got very upset. This is wrong. You shouldn't be preaching such things from the pulpit. In fact, I think one of them even said, "You're abusing the pulpit by." talking about these issues, but I'm taking every one of these issues and relating them to what the Word of God says. For example, the face diapers, um, you know, clearly in Corinthians, Paul talks about, we with open face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed into his image. So, huh, that's interesting. Not with covered face, not with veiled face, you know, and Moses is brought up as an example. Anyway, there's scripture related to each of these topics that uh, that I, I speak to, but of course I'm starting with something that is of interest and a question and an issue that my congregation has, and my congregation is very astute people who are reading and studying what's happening in the greater thing and just not accepting what the you know health authorities say or what Bill Gates says or what you know any of these so-called authorities. It's like no, no, no. We ought to question all of that and uh, evaluate whether these things are really good for us as, as human beings made in the image of God. I liken the shots actually because they've killed millions and are probably going to kill many millions more. I liken the shots in a sermon to uh, abortion outside the womb. Yes, murdering babies in the womb is what abortion does. Well, murdering humans outside the womb is what these shots are designed to do and what they are doing. In fact, it's very clear what their goal is depopulate the planet by about seven and a half billion people is what one you know group are, are talking about another we're talking about seven billion i know they're a little more conservative they don't want to murder 7.5 just a seven billion people is this a reference enough. to the uh georgia guidestones or yes exactly georgia guidestones okay. with half a billion people on the, on the planet is what they want yeah and uh, god smited that 
or <laughs> they got destroyed, destroyed the whole somehow. thing. Yeah, I don't think if someone like rammed with the car, I don't think they got caught. But I think know, they that... planted a bomb. It, it, it looks like the evidence somebody planted a bomb. But anyway, I mean it's stone, so yeah, uh, yeah, it's hard to you know stone is like the structure that lasts the longest. You know, you look at you know something like Ru Mount Rushmore is going to last longer than say the Empire State Building mm -hmm. because stone lasts. You know, the pyramids and all the other stuff. Yeah, something about that material. Um, so good on them for destroying the Guidestones, <laughs> as far as I, I'm concerned. Uh, they will not be missed. Uh, and the government shouldn't be maintaining that stuff. Like, because that was on, I believe it was on government property or either that. Hmm. It, there was some sort of relationship where the government was maintaining that as a some sort of tourist attraction. Hmm. So. so those those kind of things got me in hot water with three pastors who demanded a meeting. Actually, you know, it was it was in November that the that the Zoom meet or the um, a cluster meeting took place, and they wanted a meeting before Christmas. I was like, wait a minute, it's just too too crazy a time of year. So I put it off, and we had a meeting in February, where they proceeded to you know criticize all the things that I teach and preach, and ultimately conclude that I'm a Christian nationalist. And I found it fascinating that one of the pastors said they had been spending a great deal of time studying critical race theory. And this was very instructive. They were learning a great deal and it was changing their whole ministry and so forth. So, and I was like, oh, wow, okay. And based on critical race theory, I realized, oh, yeah, here's what, what this looks like. Because critical race theory, a Marxist uh, tactic uh, by which you tear down and destroy relationships among people in order to create uh, hatred racial hatred in this case and conflict and ultimately uh, a battle that will lead to the destruction of everything to burn it all down as somebody said in the summer of 2020 we're going to burn it all down unless we get our way well that's what critical race theory is designed to tear down destroy in order to render everything disaster so that they can then build their marxist uh, well, they call it a paradise, but really it's a, a hellhole wherever it's been tried. And that's what I mean, we see in Venezuela, wait, you, Cuba. And... You wouldn't want to live in uh, South Africa and you don't think that's paradise? <laughs> <laughs> so they were they were trained as critical race theorists, theorists and they were applying their training to me. You know, I hadn't sat down and listened to their sermons and got them online and criticized. You know, you preached about this and that and the other thing. And no, no, no. But they were critical of everything uh, that I preach. And that's why one pastor said I'd be horrified if anyone listened to any one of your sermons. So they asked me at the end of that meeting, basically, to leave the Evangelical Free Church. They said, you're not of the ethos of the Evangelical Free Church. And uh, we want you to answer this question for us. Will you leave? And uh, I was so stunned by this meeting as a whole and by that audacious question at the end, I didn't really know how to answer them. Um, so, uh, they assumed that I was going to answer their question. And yet, as I prayed about it and thought about it after the meeting, it's like, these guys have no authority over me to even ask this question or even to hold this meeting. They're not in a position of authority in the structure of our denomination where there's, um, you know, there's the local churches and then there's districts, 10 districts. So there's superintendents at the district level that are supposed to be the shepherds to the pastors in the churches in their district. That's their job, to be the shepherd to the shepherds. Uh, and so if there was going to be something coming against me as a pastor to say, hey, we got a real problem with what you're doing, David, it would have come from them 
or from the member of that staff of the district that's on the board of ministerial standing. And that board is at the national level, and that board is designed to discipline pastors who err or teaching error theologically. So they're teaching something contrary to the statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church. In other words, those essentials, we're unified on those essentials, but if you're teaching something outside of those essentials, not against the essentials, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's what the motto is, unity on the essentials, charity and everything else. But I found these three pastors, uh, they didn't care about me being unified on the essentials and not teaching anything in contrast to the doctrinal statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church, but they were horrified that I was teaching other things and they gave me no charity basically said, we need you to leave. We're horrified by you. No charity on the non-essentials. So they're acting actually in contradiction to what the whole philosophy of the evangelical free church was and has been since its founding. So I didn't answer them. No, it's like they have no authority over me. They were not representing the district or representing the board of ministerial standing. And they have no right to even ask this question, nor who appointed them to determine the ethos? You know, what's the ethos of the evangelical free church and who gets to determine what that ethos is and that I don't match and, and meet up with that ethos? Who can, who could do that? Not them. Uh, so I just simply didn't answer them, which I think probably upset them even more. Um, so it uh, unfolded from there where finally the two, we have two district superintendents that, that share that role, contacted me and asked me to answer their question, the, the question of those three pastors. It's like, what? what? Those three pastors have no authority to ask me that question. Are you asking that question for yourselves? And the answer was no, they were asking for those three pastors. Like, why are you district superintendents hiding behind the skirts of these three pastors? If you've got a problem with me, you need to, on your own authority, deal with me. But they were not doing that. They were just demanding that I answer the question of these three pastors, which again, I refuse. It's like, hey, you have no authority. They have, those pastors have no authority and you have no authority based on no investigation of yourself, of me and my preaching to ask me to answer their questions. If you want to do an investigation of me, you need to do it yourselves. That's your job as district superintendents. But they didn't do that. And I mean, so it sounds like catty gossip behind yeah. closed doors. Mm -hmm. um, I, I got to ask, is the East, you said it was a district. Yes. Um, is that like the woke district or? Yes. People identify it as the woke district uh, that the preachers and actually at least one of the three preachers that were, were on my case uh, is clearly woke in a number of things that he's stated and things where it's like, I'm surprised that he's not being disciplined because after all, he made a statement. And by the way, this statement is not only public, it was recorded and the recording of it still exists on the EFCA East website. So it's not like anybody's hiding what he said. So when I say what he said, it's not something that, that anybody shouldn't already be aware of if they wanted to be aware of it. And he said this regarding abortion. He believes that sometimes women need to have an abortion. You know, the circumstances of life and all the different blah, 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 whatever it is. And uh, therefore, abortion should remain legal. It's like, wow. Okay. So you're pro-abortion. I'm anti 
murder of babies in the womb because they're created in God's image. And it is murder. It is murder to take the life of an innocent baby in the womb. And no, you're pro he's advocating. Yeah, yeah, pro murder. And yet there's no discipline of him. <laughs> but I'm anti murder. And you're criticizing me. And yeah, they, you know, were unhappy with statements I've made about uh, abortion is murder. And that the, the discipline for murder in the word of God is very clear. The murderer loses his life. He's executed for committing that murder. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty cut and dry issue. Um, and we don't do that here in the United States anymore these days. Uh, regarding that, it just sounds like, you know, the EFCA has some sort of, you know, magisterium would be the Catholic, Roman Catholic word for it. But they have some form of that. The Southern Baptists would call it a credentials committee. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like it only goes one way. Mm-hmm. And I guess you have like the woke district, which, you know, Jeff Clyver uh, was Cleaver, the, yeah. Cleaver, OK, was the one who was uh, excommunicated or not excommunicated, removed they, his they credentials, I believe. Yeah, they disciplined him and, and basically suspended his credentials as, as an ordained minister. So they would say he's under discipline if he repents. And they've, you know, basically said he has to repent of his attitude. He has to repent of his influence and some other things that are pretty vague. Like, yeah, they oh, weren't okay. sin, they weren't cut and dry <laughs> sin issues. In fact, mm -hmm. I don't think any of the charges, except for maybe misrepresentation, which right. I don't think they substantiated that. Exactly. Were uh, cut and dry sin issues. Like mm -hmm. you look at the example of excommunication in First Corinthians five. That's a dude sleeping with his you know father's widow or whatever. Um, yeah, that that was a cut and dry wrong mm -hmm. situation. It wasn't you know being divisive or. Uh, argumentative or whatever you know, which is less cut and dry at, um so you know it's not a coincidence that that's the example in the bible that we have of mm -hmm. someone being told to get kicked out of the church whereas you were being accused of uh didn't they find like some sort of procedural thing? right because they originally the you know we hate your preaching and you're a christian nationalist now this comes that was in uh, February 2021. It would have been in, in September of 2022. So about a year and a half later, uh, there were two representatives of the district, not the two superintendents that are supposed to be the shepherd to the shepherds, but uh, two lower representatives, one from the board of ministerial standing, the other an operations director who I take to be that's somebody that, you know, handles the books and whatnot. So it's kind of a low level. But anyway, those two met with me also by Zoom. And uh, they went through a whole list of questions, one of which was a list of 11 questions to determine whether you're a Christian nationalist or not. So Did you back pass on this Christian. Test? No, according to them, I failed, although I denied it. I said, I am not a Christian nationalist. I am a biblicist and I apply the Bible to every area of life, including what the Bible says about law and government. 
and at I the mean, end that's of the kind so, of you know what Christian nationalists do. Yeah. So at, at the end of that list of questions, and in the middle of it, he said, "Well, you answered these questions this way, therefore you're a Christian nationalist." I said, "No, I deny that." So at the end well, of the why, entire, why is that a sin issue? Yeah, exactly. Even if even if I was a Christian, but anyway, at the end of that list of questions, he said to me, "I know that you say you are not a Christian nationalist, but I believe you are a Christian nationalist." It's like. And I asked him, what's your definition? Can you give me a definition of a Christian nationalist? He said, well, there's a lot of definitions and there's a bunch of disagreement. And yeah, really, it's becoming a less than useful term. What? You can't give me a definition, but you're accusing me of being that? What kind of justice is this? And I brought this up, uh, you know, in, in the recent meeting. It's like, no answer to that. You're a Christian no. nationalist and, and we... Uh, that's not of the ethos of the evangelical free church, and therefore, you know, that's where that's where that all ends. It, I'm just astonished by it, really. I After mean, they accused Jeff Cleaver of the same thing. He they was did. acquitted of that, I believe. Uh, they found him guilty on the other things, but they acquitted him or dropped the charges on, on that charge, I believe. Um, yeah. And so, that's sort of what I see happening here. They've realized the Christian nationalist thing doesn't stick. They don't have a definition for it. You can't. And you can't claim that it's sin if you, you know, even if you did hold this. Now they basically they what they want to do is say you're a white supremacist, you're a racist, and I decry that. That is so wrong. In my church, there are people of mixed races. And, you know, there's no racism. That's that's a, a a terrible slander. The one who uses that, and I know that's why they call it Christian nationalism because if they actually called me a racist. I could go after them. They need to be disciplined for slandering a pastor in the evangelical free church, which is what really what. They, so they backed off on the, you know, that that slanderous charge of Christian nationalism because they knew that that really wouldn't stick. But then they said, well, there's people that have accused you of not following your church's constitution, not accused you of something morally wrong, not accused you of doctrinal error, which is what the board of ministerial standing is supposed to deal with. Instead, they accuse you of not following your constitution. And here was the charges. You don't have any elders. I said, that is a lie. I am an elder. Yes, at this point in time, we only have one. That's not ideal, but that's our constitution does not require us to have multiple elders. It has a process by which that can happen. And if there's no one at the point in time that uh, qualifies, it's better not to have than to just put someone in that position. Now, and, just to uh, pause right there, is this something that happened because of circumstances that you had multiple and then it we dropped did. down? Right. We did have multiple and there was some that stepped back. And obviously with COVID, like I mentioned, there was one family that didn't continue with it. So there was some circumstances behind that. And uh, we've been working on filling that uh, position, training and prepare. But, you know, we're not there yet. But nonetheless, but the, you still had a congregational vote yes. on a key matter. Yes. Which, and, and the congregation is, is, you know tight on many of these issues it's not yeah so they accuse me well on the elder issue you're not following your constitution no that's a false charge and i i labeled it as a false charge the second charge was in the year 2021 you did not have a congregational meeting and your your constitution requires you to have a congregational meeting and it's like that's true we were not able to obtain a quorum because many people were not available didn't come so you know there was difficulties. I know that many churches had a lot of difficulties in 2021. In fact, most of those churches that are bringing accusations against me, they shut their doors, let alone not having a congregational meeting. They didn't have a worship service 
You know, they shut their doors. No so, in-person uh, are you service, saying you're not but you like, didn't have a congregational meeting. <laughs> are you saying you're not like David Platt, who will institute a business meeting during a worship service to have a vote <laughs> on an elder? No, we have a separate meeting. And, uh, you know, so there's the one charge. We had congregational meetings in 2020. We had congregational meetings in 2022, 2023. But 2021, that one year, we did not have a congregational meeting. And that to them was horrifying. It's like, but this isn't a moral issue. This isn't a doctrinal issue. Yes, you closed your church doors and nobody, perhaps somebody should have accused you of violating God's word, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. But I'm not accusing you of that. But somebody could rightly accuse you, look, you're in violation of the word of God. You're not worshiping in person. But all those churches, I mean, many, many of the evangelical free churches closed their doors for at least a, a bit of time uh, or some for months at a time. I remember one of the pastors in Washington, D.C., uh, he got famous, I think, because they did a, uh, TV did a, a news piece on him. He got photographs of each of his, his congregation and he set them up in the pews. <laughs> so when he was preaching from the pulpit, he could look at the pictures of his congregation in the pews. And uh, that was a, a big deal. It's like, okay, that's fine. I'm not gonna attack you or criticize you for the choices you've made, but these are the choices that I've made. And yes, we did not have a congregational meeting in 2021, but that is not a reason to discipline a pastor and say, you are uh, you know, violating something that is that needs to be disciplined all the way up now at the national level of the Board of Ministerial Standing and say, oh, we got to haul you before the court to do this. It's like something's really wrong with this process. And I know what it is. It's the original three pastors that said, we want you to leave. And you didn't leave. So we're going to find a way. Oh, Christian National. Now nah, that didn't work. Let's find a different way. And we'll just keep finding a way until you finally we finally get rid of you. And uh, that's what I believe. Uh, so is are, are there place. any other charges? Because they, they have the, the elder one and then they have the procedure one and then maybe some accusation of Christian nationalism that's unsubstantiated and uh, not really fully formed. I guess might be something they throw at you. Is there a fourth issue? Well, they've made a fourth issue, and that is after the meeting with the, the two representatives at the district level, that I answered all their questions. In fact, they were very thankful. They said, "Thank you for being honest. Thank you for being open. Thank you for answering all our questions." It was a two and a half hour interrogation. Um, at the end of that, they said, "Okay, we'll be in contact with you." Well, the next week, the contact was, "We need these five documents from you. We need the list of all your uh, church." Uh, contact information, names, contact information for every, everybody in your church. That is emails, phone numbers. So, whoa, wait a minute. We make a promise to everyone in our congregation. They don't have to give us that information, but if they choose to give us any contact information, email, phone, address, uh, snail mail address, if they give us any of that, we promise to them we will not share that with anyone. Anyone, period. Nobody gets that information because we know and we respect the privacy of our congregation uh, and many of them work inside the belly of the beast, and they know how wicked and evil the beast is that they're working inside of. And they know that it, if you surrender some of your personal information, yeah, it, it may wind up where you don't want it to wind up. And so I refused to turn that over. They wanted business meeting notes. They wanted, um, they wanted bank records for a number of years. They, they wanted all this information. I said to the, in response to this, like, this looks like, to me, this is very puzzling because none of these things really match the accusations that you're making. You know, you've got these accusations here, but you want all this information over here. 
that doesn't relate to the accusation. So are there additional accusations you're not revealing to me? Which again, would be a violation of the biblical standards of justice. If you're putting somebody on trial, you give them all the accusations up front. But what I've experienced is a changing target. Oh, okay, we didn't get this to stick, Christian National. Now we're going to try this. Nah, now we're going to try this. And that's not a biblical standard of justice at all in how we've been treated. So we, the leaders, and we have deacons. So yes, we don't have elders, but our deacons overseeing the stewardship ministry and deacon uh, as as church secretary, when we talked about these issues and talked about what was happening, we agreed. This process is not just. And to participate in what they are now demanding would itself be to participate in injustice. To give them this, what they're demanding, would be to participate in injustice, and we do not want to do that. So we got back to them and said, here's the reasons why these documents are not available to you, and the proper custodians of these documents have agreed uh, that we will not give those documents to you. And so that led to being hauled before the board, uh, the National Board of Ministerial Standing. You didn't do what we told you to do, is what it comes down to. We told you to turn over all this information about your congregation, your church, your finances, and you didn't do what we told you to do. It's like, what, what kind of system of church governance is this? A very uh, dictatorial, top-down, not according to biblical justice. I, now, I am just shocked after 42 years of involvement with the Evangelical Free Church that this is how I am treated by these who claim that their whole purpose is to be my shepherd. Right? The, the district exists to shepherd the individual pastors in the local church. The national exists to help the district do that shepherding ministry. And I have not gotten shepherding from the district at all. I've gotten attacked. I've gotten, you know, wolves rather than shepherding. One of the district superintendents um, who uh, was at a retreat that I was also attending, he was attending with uh, his, his staff and there was a couple other churches with their staff. At the beginning of that day, and, and the pastor laid out the, the groundwork, uh, the ground rules were no church business. We're not going to talk shop. None of that. It's just about our relationship with the Lord. So that was good. you know, And that was the rules for the retreat day. But this district superintendent came to me, or co-superintendent came to me and, and said, David, can we talk after this is over? In other words, we'll abide by the rules after this is over. Can we have a sit down? I said, I'd be glad to sit down and talk to you. would love to do that. I said, okay, we'll do that. Now, the, the, the retreat was supposed to end at 3. The pastor conducting the retreat cut it short to 2.30. So this pastor had an extra half hour in his time schedule that was already planned. Yes, he had to travel back to New Jersey, but still he had that extra hour. And he said, David, text me and uh, we'll, we'll get in contact. And I sent him a text and got an automated response on the road right now. Thank you for your text and haven't heard cricket, only crickets, nothing, nothing at all since uh, that that uh, at the beginning of this year, I think it was in uh, January or February uh, of, of this year, 2023. So it's like instead of shepherding me, they're just tossing me up to uh, a, a process of discipline uh, from the, the Board of Ministerial Standing. So you traveled to Minneapolis last week. Yes. Uh, the, the week of the uh, 18th through 22nd, for those mm -hmm. who are uh, listening to this, of September. Um, what happened at that meeting? Uh, you kind of described a lot in detail, but uh, I guess kind of like walk through that process. You go up to Minneapolis. I guess they have some sort of corporate head headquarters mm -hmm. there. You, you, you walk in, like, was the reception good? 
uh, and then they tear into you or try to tear into you, or was it well, we, we, we greeted cordially. from the beginning? <laughs> no, we greeted cordially, and uh, uh, I, I thank them for their time, because I know they most of these people have traveled from other parts of the country. The 10 districts represent the whole United States, so these people all from uh, 10 districts around the country. Um, and I asked at the very beginning to record, the, could I record this meeting? And they refused. No, you cannot record this meeting uh, at, at all. I, I, I was like, well, um, my uh, deacon who was with me, Joe, and I stepped out in the hall to discuss this because before this meeting, we thought, well, if they won't let us record, should we just say, okay, then this meeting is done? Uh, because recording the meeting would mean there's a level of accountability and a level of transparency. I mean, but actually, they're demanding, they're saying, I'm in trouble because I'm not transparent and our church is not transparent, but huh, it's, a, it, it's a different standard for them, I guess. They don't have to be transparent. In fact, the moderator of the meeting said something to the effect that, um, yeah, if we recorded this, people would less likely be open, um, eh, you know, which is kind of saying that they may not, in my interpretation, may not be they honest. They don't want to know? go on the record for yeah. what they're accusing you of. Exactly. And so uh, I told my deacon, I said, well, I believe, I, I came to this meeting because I believe the Lord wanted us to be here to be a testimony, just like Jesus said in, in Matthew, um, I believe it's Matthew 7. So they'll drag you before uh, the kings and the princes and rulers, and they'll drag you before synagogues. And don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit will give you what to say at, at that moment so that you will be a testimony for me. And so I said, I believe we are here because the Lord Jesus wants us to be a testimony to this group of men uh, gathered around the table. And so we went back in and I proceeded. They, they gave me the floor basically to say what, whatever I would like to say to introduce it. And so I share with them the whole idea of what a free church is. A free church is not a state church. It is not run by the civil government. It's not controlled or manipulated by the civil government. I used the illustration of, I had the two Christmas ornaments, one a, local, a little church, and another was an image of the, the U.S. Capitol building. So here's church and state. And explained, and I asked them, please correct me if I'm wrong about the history of our denomination. You know, back in the Scandinavian countries, they all had state churches. The civil government was over the church. The civil government told the church what to do, and the church must obey and do everything the civil government told it to do. And so the revival that took place over 150 years ago there in those Scandinavian countries resulted in Christians being excited, wanting to have home Bible studies and prayer meetings and evangelistic events out. And the state church said, no, you're not doing anything unless it's in the four walls of the church. And they began to say this, uh, we, we sense the spirit telling us. And then we got the state saying, no, you can't do that. And you can't do that. And you can't do that. Something's wrong here. So they opened their Bibles and discovered what the apostles and, and, you know, Acts chapter four and Acts chapter five, we ought to obey God rather than men. And they realized, wait a minute, there's a real problem here. There's a heresy in this state church uh, uh, relationship where the state is over the church. It's the heresy of Erastianism. And Erastianism says that the sovereign ruler of the church is the civil government. The state is over the church. And they realized, no, no, that's not biblical. The state and church are two separate jurisdictions. They have their God-ordained area, but it's right. separate. Sphere of sovereignty. The state, yes, the state is not over the church. That's why they formed the 
free church in contrast with the state church of, of Scandinavia and, and Norway. So when they immigrated here to the United States, well, like you said, there was a covenant church that was in that, that history as well. But before that, when they arrived here, they would have naturally joined in the Lutheran churches that spoke Swedish or Norwegian because those were people of their culture and language. And that would have been natural. But they recognized, well, wait a minute. Those Lutherans have the same idea that they had back in the old country, that the state is over the church. And that's heresy. That's wrong. We cannot be part of those fellowships because they have an essential issue in the Christian faith that they misunderstand. They misread the Bible and therefore they formed instead of the evangelical Lutheran church in America, which is what the major mainline denomination is still to this day. They formed the evangelical free church of America, EFCA rather than ELCA. You could say they looked at the ELCA as people who have the evangelical state church idea. Instead, the evangelical free is under the, the, the clear statement that Erastianism is a heresy and therefore evangelical free, free from state control, free from state government church. Um, so nobody objected to that. Yep, that's the history. And then I explained, well, what happens when the civil government comes along and COVID offers an umbrella, a financial umbrella to help churches that are hurting financially with the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP. I read the details of that thing, and it was that if you accept this money from the government, it's a loan to you, to your church, and yet if you do certain things that the federal government wants you to do, that loan can be turned into a grant that you never have to repay. Now, isn't that a string of attachment between the church and the civil government? Okay, there's one. How about the FEMA's program of uh, what they called the uh, clergy response team, where they took promises and oaths from pastors to do certain things during crises uh, directed by FEMA. There's another string attaching uh, the federal government to the local church. And how about the string of a 501c3, where the IRS calls you a not-for-profit religious organization, and you must obey certain things the IRS says, or you'll be in trouble with the IRS. There's another string of control, and that's at the federal level. And there's a string of control at the state level for every church that becomes incorporated, because the head of every corporation is the state, and the promise the corporation makes, in that case the church, that it will abide by all the public policies of the state. And so if the public policy of the state says, hey, you got to shut your doors, the incorporated church says, oh, we made a prior agreement that we would obey the public policy. So the Lord and head is no longer Jesus Christ. It is the civil government. And I asked the men around the table, I said, how many strings does it take before this local church is no longer a free church? Nobody would answer that question. In fact, the only response I heard related to that question was uh, not immediately, but sometime later in the conversation, one of the pastors said, well, We've got lots of churches in the Evangelical Free Church taking grant money from the federal government to do their ministries. Oh, yeah, they got a soup kitchen or whatever. It's like, oh, grant money. Oh, yeah, we know what that grant money looks like because if you take grant money, maybe you have to cover the cross that nobody's going to see the cross while they're getting the food for your soup kitchen. And, oh, you can't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people who come in for that soup. Oh, because that would be violating the separation of church and state. And, the grant money becomes a string of control, and they were admitting, oh, there's any evangelical free churches. I don't know. If, he didn't give me a number, so I don't know how many, but he was obviously referring to more than a couple, but there's churches that are accepting federal grant money. So my point, I had hoped it would be understood, is that the evangelical free church has shifted off of its foundation, and that word free is really problematic now.
but somehow I don't think any of that really connected with the, the group there at the table. And they processed on with the accusations against me not uh, turning over the documents that were demanded of me and therefore being, I don't know, uh, insubordinate and, uh, and so on and so forth. But, you know, I was kind of asking, has something, and I did, as literal, has something changed in the evangelical free church uh, since its founding in 1950? Uh, and they said, no, nothing has changed at all. Evangelical free church today is the same as it was in 1950. I don't know. I, I see enormous amounts of change. And uh, yeah, the, the, these are problematic. How long was the meeting? Uh, it was a little over, well, not quite two hours, about an hour and three quarters. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, you know, first part was you given your, I guess, opening salvo. And then they kind of respond with the procedural uh Minutia, I guess, is what mm -hmm. you want to call it. But at, at the end of the day, they're going after you for not submitting documents after investigating or trying to go after you for a bunch of other things, which, you know, it, it sounds like a fishing expedition. Mm -hmm. And th that's and, exactly the phrase that, that some of my deacons use. This looks like a fishing expedition, and we're not going to participate in that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they're just trying to entrap you in order to get out of this. So my understanding is, um, or actually, how about you explain what, what exactly is the next step uh, well, they're in gonna, this process? They're going to get back to me as to whether they discipline me and they could do two, one of two things in terms of the discipline. They could completely remove my ordination and say, basically, you're defrocked, you're uh, no longer an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Free Church, or they could do what they've done to Pastor Jeff Clewer, where they say, we've suspended your ordination, and so you're not, uh, you're not an approved pastor in the Evangelical Free Church because you're under discipline until you repent of your wrongs. For Jeff, I guess that would mean he has to shred his book because uh, they, they say his book is full of lies, and, and uh, you know, he has to undo all of the lies. He done. That's what their you know, take is on, on what Jeff is about. But so that, that suspension is kind of a lesser discipline on the way towards, well, if that doesn't get resolved, then, you know, we do remove you uh, as, as an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Free Church. But that, now, they're going to probably get back to me later this week is, is what uh, I understood. So it's either a full defrock or a uh, we're going to hold it over your head, mm -hmm. uh, recanting your cool again, I guess, type of defrock. Yeah, right. And my understanding is they can't remove you from being a pastor because the EFCA is still local autonomous church. Correct. Similar to the Southern Baptist Convention, but obviously they don't hold ministerial licenses over people. Um, so they can't kick you out, but they can say that you're, you know, I guess a rogue, disavowed right. pastor mm -hmm. operating in their uh, sphere. All right. Now, uh, what is the likelihood of an, uh, sort of acquittal is like, okay, we've made it this far, but there's nothing really that we're, we can or really should do about this. Um, it was hard to read all of the, I was like 14 because not everyone spoke. So it's hard to kind of evaluate that, but uh, some that did sp speak were pretty vociferous that they, one fellow has said, Oh, I, I listened to your sermon last Sunday, the exact previous Sunday, which was just two days earlier. Uh, and again, he had all kinds of criticism of it. And uh, his basic idea was that you have muddied or um, confused the gospel. 
the gospel's there, but you've muddied it with all these other issues. And on that Sunday, I was, had talked about the issue of evolution versus creation. And the Bible teaches creation. And by the way, there's, if you take Darwin's own uh, uh, measure of whether his theory is true or not, it's false. And, you know, he gave us, and so talk about creation, evolution, talk about abortion, um, and a couple other issues like that. It's like, hmm, those are all biblical issues. How's that muddying the gospel uh, to speak about, and yet he was adamant that um, uh, his illustration was that if a woman came into my church, because I talked about the depopulation agenda also, which really upset him, I think, <laughs> that uh, these shots are designed and they have killed millions and uh, designed to kill millions more because their depopulation goal is very clear. They, seven billion or seven billion plus, they want dead. So uh, he said, well, if a woman came into the congregation and heard this, and suppose she had just been hired by Walgreens and just been trained to give these shots. And um, she's going to walk out the door and not hear the gospel. I'm thinking, about, I didn't have a good response at the moment, but I thought later, oh, so if we were, say, the year 1930, and a young man just learned to be a train engineer, uh, and he's driving trains down the track uh, with a bunch of boxcars in Germany, of all places, and he doesn't know what's in the boxcars. And he's... He drops them off at Auschwitz. And so should I, if I know what happens in Auschwitz, and I know what's in, in those boxcars, would it be a good thing for me to tell that young man, do you realize what you're participating in? And so, uh, you know, and of course I, I didn't mention it and it's a good thing because they would say, oh, you're, you know, ridiculous. You're comparing this to Nazis. Well, it's actually worse than the Nazis. More people are going to die from these shots than the Nazis killed in right. the Holocaust. Uh, yeah, I mean... I mean, even in 20th century genocides, Hitler put up rookie numbers compared to, you know, the Chinese, Stalin. Stalin. Oh, yeah. Mao Zedong, yeah. I think the Japanese were actually worse in World War II, uh, what they did to China, um, than what the Germans did. So, that, yeah, that's, yeah, it's just when you look at history, it's like, okay, well, the, all these instances are worse, but why do we only focus on this? Because they can use it as a bludgeon to... You know, make white people who had nothing to do with that feel guilty, uh, essentially. So uh, I, I would say this young woman, if she's doing this, would receive a warning that what she's doing is evil and she needs to repent of that evil. And that's the gospel. You know, if you're committing adultery, repent of that adultery. Uh, if you're stealing, repent of this. If you're murdering, repent of these. Repent of your sins. Believe what the word of God says and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So baffled how he would say that that is you know contrary to the gospel but i understand what he's saying don't preach repentance because repentance will upset somebody in the pew who's involved in sin and they'll leave and not hear the message that god has graciously provided for the provision of your sins well, wait a minute what's the very first word out of jesus's mouth when he preached the gospel in mark chapter one the very first word is repent repent for the kingdom of god is at hand so if we don't preach repentance, and how can you re pre preach repentance if you don't point out sin? That's what I wonder. You know, oh, we, let's not talk about sodomy because ah, there might be a sodomite in the congregation. They get upset and they leave. Wait a minute! If they're a sodomite, they need to hear that that is sin because everywhere in our culture they hear that that's wonderful. That's to be celebrated. Let's have a pride parade instead of hearing no, no, no. That's a violation of God's holy law. That's a sin. And you're on the slippery road to hell you need to repent of that sin come out of that wicked death style not a lifestyle come out of that repent receive jesus christ to say that's the gospel 
But if you don't want people to be upset and offended by the gospel, and Paul said that, the offense of the cross, right? If you don't want people to be upset, you don't want them to be offended, never preach repentance, never call anybody to repentance, never point out the sins of our day, because, yeah, that will upset some people, and they will leave, but then other people will truly hear the gospel, repent, believe, and receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Yeah, it's just, you know, throwing seeds, some of them, you know, actually do take, you know, root and grow, grow and bear fruit. So it's not for us to determine which one of those, um, who's going to do that. It's up to God. We're just, you know, we're preaching the word uh, mm -hmm. and it doesn't return void. Amen. So uh, it sounds like you're saying that the odds are not in your favor um, after that uh, minute. Minnesota interview, I think, is uh, right. how you worded it. So, and from there, if they do a discipline process, then you can appeal it at the next. Well, that's the thing they changed meeting. in June. the The last meeting in June, where Jeff was voted on by the whole uh, everybody that was delegates to that convention in June, uh, they not only voted against Jeff. I think it was seven hundred eleven to by a couple dozen maybe for him, maybe maybe less than the 20 for him. But they not only voted against Jeff, then they voted a change in the bylaws because Jeff could appeal to the whole convention, which is what that meeting was. And he did. But they changed the bylaws that now say, if the Board of Ministerial Standing disciplines you, you cannot appeal to the convention. So they just, they just cut off that accountability that Jeff used, even though it went against him. Uh, so that would not be available to me uh, if if they do uh, either defrock me or I don't know what you would call the other halfway, you know, suspend my, my ordination. Yeah, indefinite suspension, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of the same thing at the end right. of the day. So um, how, how can people help in the audience help? Well, first of all, prayer. Pray for myself, pray for our congregation, pray for wisdom. Um, and uh, I know that getting this podcast out to as many people who you know may be uh, in the evangelical free church that ha haven't heard about what's going on what haven't heard what happened to jeff uh, what's happening to me or and so I, I, getting the word out i think would be the second thing people can do but deeply appreciate any, any prayers that uh, uh your your audience here would, would offer up well we'll try to get this as, out to <laughs> as many people as possible i, I mean it's you know, myself, way smaller. John Harris is probably the biggest voice that would mm -hmm. cover an issue like this. Um, and I, I, I like to cover a lot of niche uh, denominations out there. Um, and evangelical uh, free church is definitely one of the ones that, you know, I, I keep tabs on because of these weird issues, because it's not a woke denomination, right. except at the very top. Mm -hmm. So... They're, they're, they're going to go woke, but they're not going to, but they're going to actually use their magisterial powers against the, you know, conservative, more orthodox pastors, which is just insane. You don't see that in a lot of other denominations, at least not yet. I, I think mm -hmm. the Southern Baptists might go in that direction if the, uh, was it the, if that uh, amendment or that committee that cooperation committee has its mm -hmm. way it might do that as well so we might see you know what's happening in the efca might spell uh, a foreshadow for other congregations or denominations but it, that's why we need to be vigilant as at this you know 
as a body of Christ. So, Amen. Uh, David, Whitney, everybody, uh, thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us. Um, anyway, have a blessed day, and we will thank catch you, you on the next one. Appreciate you so much. Thank you for your work. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.